Welcome back to Roshcast, episode 38, the last episode of 2018. That's crazy that 2018 is basically done. Where has all the time gone? Uh, that's certainly an unanswerable question that we'll all struggle with. But let's not waste too much time being meta here. We've got lots of material to cover. Before we jump into this week's episode, we have a few people to recognize. First, congrats to Zane, who won the Trauma Ringtone Challenge last episode, and will be receiving a Rosh Review subscription. Special mention goes out to Clark, David, and Riker, who all responded soon after Zane. We should also recognize Sarah, who won the EM Clerkship Roshcast Crossover Challenge and won a free copy of Case Files Emergency Medicine. Stay tuned for more contests to come. In keeping with the giving spirit, I mean, it is the holiday season after all, let's give away more free stuff, more board review questions. You're ridiculous. This week, let's head back to the Rosh blog for our rapid review. Let's talk about central cord syndrome. How does it present clinically? Central cord usually presents with sensory and motor deficits, with the upper extremities being affected more than the lower extremities. It's most commonly caused by an extension injury. How about anterior cord syndrome? Anterior cord syndrome presents with complete loss of motor, pain, and temperature below the level of the injury, but you should retain proprioception and vibratory sense. Anterior cord is most often caused by flexion or vascular injuries. And lastly, what about brown Saccard syndrome? How does that present? Brown Saccard classically occurs after penetrating trauma. It results in ipsilateral loss of motor, vibration, and proprioception with contralateral loss of pain and temperature. Nice work. And for a quick pictorial review, you can see a helpful image on the Rosh blog at roshreview.com blog. Let's get going with the new material. A three-day-old girl presents with decreased feeding and is found to be limp and minimally responsive. After intubation, at what rate should breaths be delivered? Is it A, 10 to 16 breaths per minute, B, 20 to 30 breaths per minute, C, 40 to 60 breaths per minute, or D, 70 to 80 breaths per minute? Unlike adults where there isn't significant variation in vital signs with age, newborns and infants have substantial variability. So for this three-day-old, you should set the vent to a rate of 40 to 60 breaths per minute, or choice C. And while this is certainly something you can look up or refer to a Braslow tape for, often these situations are really stressful, so having this knowledge down cold will increase your confidence in the entire situation and allow you to focus on other aspects of the resuscitation. With that in mind, let me run through a couple of easy-to-remember respiratory rates. For infants, from birth through about one year old, the rate should be between 30 to 60. For toddlers or those ages 1 to 3, the rate should be between 24 to 40. Preschoolers, those aged 3 to 6, should be ventilated at a rate of 22 to 34. School-age children, or those ages 6 to 12, set a rate of 18 to 30. And lastly, for adolescents, or those aged 12 to 18, set a rate of 12 to 16 breaths per minute. While there is wide variation in respiratory rate, keep in mind that the goal is to maintain an appropriate partial pressure of carbon dioxide. Serial blood gases can be used to assess your settings. It's also worth noting that it's not just the respiratory rate that varies for kids. All the vital signs vary substantially with age. While you may have to just look them up, as a quick and dirty estimate, for the blood pressure, you can estimate the systolic BP with the formula 70 plus 2 times the age in years. We'll post a table up on the blog and on our Twitter for you to reference and review. Definitely worth a look. All right, the next one's more of an adult problem, at least in this country. We're going to talk malnutrition, which we often see in the elderly and alcoholics. In a malnourished patient, which of the following sources of megaloblastic anemia is expected to develop first? Is it A, folic acid deficiency, B, hypothyroidism, C, liver disease, or D, vitamin B12 deficiency? The correct answer here is choice A, folic acid deficiency. That's correct, but why don't you dive a bit deeper since vitamin B12 deficiency can also cause a megaloblastic anemia? 
Sure. So folic acid deficiency, hypothyroidism, liver disease, and vitamin B12 deficiency all cause a macrocytic anemia. As a subcategory of macrocytic anemia, both folic acid deficiency and vitamin B12 deficiency cause a megaloblastic anemia. Typically, the body maintains B12 stores to last up to four years before megaloblastic changes occur. In contrast, the body only stores enough folic acid to last two to four months before megaloblastic changes occur. And those, quote, megaloblastic changes you're referring to include large oval red cells as well as hypersegmented neutrophils on the peripheral smear. While you're unlikely to ever actually look at a peripheral smear, you should be on the lookout for an MCV greater than 100 on your routine CBC with diff. And while we're on the topic, do you know what the most common cause of vitamin B12 deficiency is? The most common cause of B12 deficiency is chronic malabsorption. This is commonly seen in pernicious anemia. You may also note a B12 deficiency in vegans who consume a limited diet as compared to the general population. Nice job. Why don't you load up the next question for us? Sure. What medication should be first-line treatment in moderate musculoskeletal back pain? Is it A, acetaminophen, B, cyclobenzaprine, C, diazepam, or D, oxycodone? Super important topic since this is something we all deal with innumerable times a shift. First-line therapy for mild to moderate back pain is either acetaminophen or an NSAID like ibuprofen or naproxen. And in those with severe pain, adjuvant medications may be needed, but this is a highly controversial topic. Some prefer opiates and benzodiazepines for severe pain. Others prefer ketamine, topical medications, or even IV lidocaine. You name it, it's been tried. Right, which is why NSAIDs and acetaminophen are first line. They're well tolerated with only mild side effects, unlike the other answer choices listed. Cyclobenzaprine and diazepam are both sedating, and oxycodone has a litany of side effects, in addition to its addictive potential. I'll just leave it at that for now. Actually, I would just add one more tidbit here. Recent research published in 2014 in The Lancet by Christopher Williams and others suggests actually moving away from acetaminophen for lower back pain. Yeah, and Bed Freeman up in Monty in New York has also done a significant amount of research on low back pain treatments. Be sure to check out some of his stuff as well. We'll add some links in the show notes. Let's move on to the next question. An 18-year-old male presents to the ED with a 4-centimeter laceration to the right side of his chin. Which of the following nerve blocks is most appropriate? Is it A, a mental nerve block, B, a posterior superior alveolar nerve block, C, a stellate ganglion block, or D, an apical nerve block? Great question and something we probably don't discuss enough since nerve blocks provide great analgesia, they're easy to perform, and have very limited side effects as opposed to the other treatments we all just talked about. To block the chin, perform a mental nerve block, or choice A. The mental nerve is a branch of the inferior alveolar nerve as it exits the mental foramen. There are actually three branches. One innervates the chin, and the other two innervate the skin and mucous membranes of the lower lip. Remember that the mental nerve does not innervate any of the teeth. And I think it's worth reviewing the other listed nerve blocks as well. Choice B, the posterior superior alveolar nerve, innervates two-thirds of the first maxillary molar as well as the second and third maxillary molars. A stellate ganglion block is a nerve block that is done as part of the treatment for reflex sympathetic dystrophy, or RSD, complex regional pain syndrome, or herpes zoster infection of the arm, head, or face. This block is performed in the sympathetic nerves of the neck. And lastly, choice D, an apical nerve block, that's done along the long axis of a tooth in the mucobuchal fold. This provides analgesia for a single tooth only. There are a couple of other dental blocks and facial blocks I'd also like to point out to round out this topic. A supraorbital block anesthetizes the ipsilateral forehead and scalp. An infraorbital block anesthetizes the area between the lower eyelid and the upper lip. And lastly, an inferior alveolar nerve block anesthetizes the ipsilateral mandibular teeth, lower lip, and chin. Remember the mental nerve we just discussed is a branch of the inferior alveolar nerve. Jeff and I actually discussed these blocks in detail on a separate podcast. 
For more on this, listen to the Amplify podcast, specifically episode five. Definitely a deeper dive there. We're headed back to the PZD for this next one. A previously healthy five-year-old girl presents to the ED with left lower extremity pain and an inability to bear weight for one day. Mom denies any recent trauma. On exam, she has a fever of 37.9, a heart rate of 130, and a respiratory rate of 28. Her left lower extremity is slightly flexed and externally rotated. She has a white blood cell count of 8,000, a CRP of 1, and an ESR of 7. Radiographs are negative for fracture. The patient's range of motion has improved following administration of ibuprofen. What is the most appropriate course of action for this patient? Is it A, intravenous antibiotics and admission to the hospital? B, MRI to rule out osteomyelitis or septic arthritis? C, orthopedic consultation for arthrocentesis? Or D, treatment with NSAIDs and discharge with follow-up arranged for the following day? So this is a five-year-old girl who has a fever and atraumatic hip pain with an inability to bear weight and has normal labs. That's correct. With that in mind, this is likely toxic synovitis or transient synovitis of the hip. This should be treated with choice D, NSAIDs, and pediatrics follow-up the next day. Exactly. Transient synovitis is the most common cause of acute hip pain in children ages 3 to 10. It's caused by inflammation of the synovium that leads to arthralgias and arthritis and then the classic limp and lower extremity pain in the abscess of an infectious etiology. Even with a classic story, it's important to distinguish this condition from other more serious etiologies like osteomyelitis, septic arthritis, and leg calf birth disease. To do this, you'd want plain films and labs, including the inflammatory markers, just like the physician did in this question. And while the utility of the inflammatory markers is often debated, the ESR specifically can be used in the COCR criteria to determine a probability of a pediatric septic joint. And I'm going to go through it since I don't think we've ever mentioned it before. There are four COCR criteria non-weight-bearing on the affected side, an ESR over 40, fever, and a white blood cell count greater than 12,000. One of four criteria gives you a 3% probability of a septic joint. Two of four criteria, the probability jumps to 40%. With three of four, the probability is 93%, and with four of four, it's 99%. In the treatment for transient synovitis is rest, non-weight-bearing, and NSAIDs. NSAIDs actually have been shown to shorten the disease course from four and a half days to two days, so they're a must. The other answer choices are unnecessary. Choice C, in arthrocentesis, that will be performed if there were concern for septic arthritis. In addition, if the concern for septic arthritis were high enough, choice A, IV antibiotics and admission would be needed. And lastly, choice B, in MRI, that would be done to rule out osteomyelitis. With normal ESR and rapid improvement after NSAIDs, this girl is unlikely to have osteomyelitis. All right, you're up for this last one, and it's again a pediatric question. Which of the following is most likely to present as a ductal-dependent cardiac lesion? Is it A, atrial septal defect, B, coarctation of the aorta, C, isolated ventricular septal defect, or D, mitral valve prolapse? Tough question, but the answer here is choice B, coarctation of the aorta. That's right, but we definitely need to spend a little bit more time on this one. When thinking about coarctation of the aorta, you must think of it in three ways, preductal, ductal, or postductal. Preductal coarctation occurs proximal to the ductus arteriosus. It can be life-threatening if severe. This type is commonly associated with Turner syndrome. Ductal coarctation occurs when there's a narrowing at the insertion of the ductus arteriosus. This usually appears when the ductus closes. And that leaves us with postductal, which, you guessed it, is narrowing distal to the ductus arteriosus. This is most common in adults. Neonates are often asymptomatic if the PDA is open or if the coarctation is not severe. Once the PDA closes, they may present in heart failure or shock. Older infants are often asymptomatic, but may have a higher blood pressure in their upper extremities as compared to their lower extremities. It may also note a brachial or radial artery pulse delay. 
And as an adult with coarctation, you may encounter hypertension and rib notching. So with that in mind, let's bring it back to the question. In the setting of a preductal coarctation, the PDA serves as a conduit for right-to-left shunted blood, with oxygenated blood reaching the upper body and deoxygenated blood reaching the lower body via the PDA and descending aorta. Then, once the ductus arteriosus closes, with severe coarctation, circulatory failure and shock may develop, hence a ductal-dependent lesion. In contrast, choice A, an ASD, and choice C, a VSD, those present with left-to-right shunting of the blood and are not ductal-dependent. Choice D, mitral valve prolapse, while that does increase the risk for adult-onset cardiovascular complications, there's little progression in childhood, and it also is not ductal-dependent. And do you recall what meds can be given to temporarily preserve the patency of the ductus arteriosus? You'd want to give alprostadil, also known as prostaglandin E1, at a dose of 0.05 to 0.1 micrograms per kilogram per minute to keep the ductus arteriosus open. Nice, and can you name a couple of other ductal-dependent lesions for us? Sure, so you have transposition of the great vessels, tetralogy of Fallot, tricuspid atresia, an interrupted aortic arch, and hypoplastic left heart syndrome. Strong work. I think you got them all. Let's close out this episode with a rapid review. For infants from birth to one year old who require mechanical ventilation, set the rate at 30 to 60 breaths per minute. For toddlers aged one to three years old, set the rate at 24 to 40 breaths per minute. For preschoolers aged three to six years old, set the rate at 22 to 34 breaths per minute. For children six to 12 years old, set the rate at 18 to 30 breaths per minute. And lastly, for those 12 and older, set the rate at 12 to 16 breaths per minute. To estimate pediatric systolic blood pressure, use the formula 70 plus two times the age in years. In the setting of malnutrition, folic acid deficiency and vitamin B12 deficiency can both lead to megaloblastic anemia. NSAIDs are first-line therapy for musculoskeletal low back pain. A supraorbital nerve block anesthetizes the ipsilateral forehead and scalp. An infraorbital nerve block anesthetizes the area between the lower eyelid and the upper lip. A posterior superior alveolar nerve block anesthetizes the second and third maxillary molars as well as part of the first maxillary molar. An inferior alveolar nerve block anesthetizes the ipsilateral mandibular teeth, lower lip, and chin. An apical nerve block anesthetizes a single tooth. A mental nerve block anesthetizes the chin as well as the skin and mucous membranes of the lower lip. Remember that the mental nerve is a branch of the inferior alveolar nerve. Transient synovitis is the most common cause of acute hip pain in children ages 3 to 10 years old. Treatment for transient synovitis is NSAIDs and rest. Ductal-dependent cardiac lesions include coarctation of the aorta, transposition of the great vessels, tetralogy of Fallot, tricuspid atresia, interrupted aortic arch, and hypoplastic left heart syndrome. To temporarily preserve patency of the ductus arteriosus, treat with prostaglandin E1 or alprostadil at a dose of 0.05 to 0.1 micrograms per kilogram per minute. Be sure to check out the blog for questions from this episode and prior episodes, related images and tables, as well as bonus teaching points. There are also tons of other great free resources there to help prepare you for the boards and the wards. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Roshcast and at RoshReview. And you can always email us at Roshcast at RoshReview.com with any feedback, corrections, or suggestions. You can also help us pick questions by identifying ones that you would like us to review. Write Roshcast in the submit feedback box as you go through the question bank. Lastly, if you have a minute, make sure to rate us and leave comments on iTunes to help spread the word about Roshcast. We'll be back next year with more high-quality rapid review.